right? Which is, you know, how do more people get access to putting this amazing asset class into their portfolio, right? It should not be that just the super ultra wealthy or, the, or a small group of institutional funds can get access to it. I mean, it must be broader. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, grandma should own it or anything like that. 100% not, right? But it should be that, you know, as people are building wealth, they have the ability to actually put in some other alternative asset classes into the portfolio outside of just real estate. How different would it be if the same thing started looking now like it wouldn't change if nothing else really did? Subscribe and hit this like button and share this with a friend. Hey, this is Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. This is Christian D. Evans coming at you. I thank you so much for listening to this. We interview top-level eight- and nine-figure entrepreneurs, business owners, and CEOs that have either had an exit or they are actually running and scaling their business to that billion-dollar valuation. We've also interviewed top-level TEDx speakers as well as incredible psychologists, also a lot of wealth managers that manage a billion dollars to 200 billion dollars and more we've had incredible guests like Sachin Kajarian Cameron Harold Jay Abraham and so many others so if you find this the value then share this with a friend and we really appreciate it guys show our guests some love by liking this and subscribing and guys until next time remember be uncommon if you can and enjoy the episode cheers <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans Podcast. I'm your host, Christian D. Evans. This next guest was a recent founder and chairman of Stockhouse Publishing, one of the North America's leading online financial communities and a global hub for accredited investors. He had a mission in his life to be on the forefront of innovation leadership in the financial markets. Now, he currently is the founder and CEO of InvestX Capital, a trading platform that delivers access and liquidity to growth equity asset class and empowers the sell side to invest and trade in institutional quality private equity. InvestX investment portfolio includes and included companies like Palantir, Airbnb, Lyft, Uber, Pinterest, SpaceX, Spotify, Dropbox, and DocuSign, and so many others. Please welcome the one and only Marcus New. How are you doing today, Marcus? Well, that's the best intro I've heard in a while. <laughs> I like the enthusiasm. Great to be here. Nice to see you, Christian. Well, definitely. Well, Marcus, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. But before we dive into all this fun stuff, you know, where the the, the, the markets are going and, and all the things that's, that's really exciting to happening. Uh, Marcus, I was listening to one of your interviews and you shared a really cool just personal story. And I want to kind of lead it with this, where you actually slept outside. And you did it for a specific reason. And everybody else went inside, but you decided to stay outside. If you could just elaborate on that story a little bit for us. Oh, gotcha. So uh, Covenant House is uh, an organization that helps youth, I think between the ages of 15 and 19, who kind of get thrown out of their home or have family problems who are living on the streets to try to help them in terms of um, you know, giving them shelter and things like that. But more importantly, helping them to kind of go through the the mental issues that they have so that they can actually come back into society and be productive. And, you know, part of that construct with that is that if you catch kids before they're kind of 19 and they don't kind of hard, have hardened habits being on the street, there's a good chance of them being rescued and becoming a, a really productive part of society. And so, so one of the things so that I've been involved with, like, like many people, and, you know, so this is not some badge of honor, um, but but really having this firm belief that we were born in zip codes that other people weren't had given opportunities that others weren't. So therefore, we have a responsibility to help out with some of our means that we were able to achieve through having these opportunities. And so so it, I find it's quite easy to be able to, you know, write a check or to support organizations financially. I find, though, that you really understand organizations, you understand what the people go through when you experience it. And so there was an opportunity for a group of entrepreneurs to be able to sleep out one night on the streets. And so you, we had a piece of cardboard and we had a sleeping bag. And that particular night, it was um, in, I think it was in like a February or March and it, it kind of rained all night long. And so of course, you know, uh, the event organizers want to give you the opportunity to experience it, but they don't want you to kind of like, you know, have a horrific experience. And so there is a, a kind of an underground parking lot. It's open, so it's not like enclosed, but that you can go in there if it, if the if it's too harsh outside. Um, that they have right kind of right beside where we're sleeping on the on the on the ground in the back of an alley. And so, so my my the, the thing that really taught me about that experience was really to understand empathy for what people who are on the streets go through. 
And, uh, you know, part of it was obviously just through the experience of it, but also the understanding, for example, if you lose your shoes, you know, which is I, the, one of the most valuable things for someone when they're on, the, when they're living on the street and people steal shoes, as you can imagine, I mean, you really are hampered for me able to be able to do anything. How do you get off the street and go do an interview if you can't have a shower or have any clothes that are clean, you know, and so there, there's a real, there's a real construct of, you know, um, people being stuck there because the small things that we take for granted, being able to show up to an interview at a Starbucks or, you know, or someplace to be able to get a job, you know, are, are kind of very difficult challenges. And so, so it did rain that night. Uh, there was a few of us that, yeah, I think there was about 40 of us, maybe 35 or 40 of us entrepreneurs that slept out that night on the street. And, you know, at about four in the morning, you know, most people had gone into the parking lot because it was difficult. You know, of course, you know, none of us have experienced anything like this. But my, my thought pattern was, you know, stick it out and, you know, experience one night. The least I can do is experience one full night, you know, versus kind of bowing out. And it's no, that's no disrespect for people that bow out because obviously going there and helping raise capital and help support this good cause was important. But but I thought, you know, we have to I have to understand it, you know. And so and so sticking it out was an important part of just, you know, understanding that and then really getting a real sense of empathy. Sometimes you drive by people on the street, you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners have experienced this where it's like, you know, they should just get a job. Like, you know, why are they sitting there on the street? Why or why are they doing the things they're doing? You know, but but when you start to understand some of the systemic issues that they have of actually just getting a job, and I'm not saying that that people the motivation level may or may not be there, but but there's some challenges there. And so there's good organizations that are working to help, you know, people make these transitions. So so that was kind of the experience. Well, the reason why I wanted to start with that, Mark, is because that allowed me to understand your personality, because you mentioned on your guys' website, InvestX, InvestX was founded on a commitment to provide access to the growing private markets. And you mentioned in your other interviews that a lot of just institutional investors, maybe just a few, right, a handful, only had the ability to play that private equity higher caliber. And your goal is really to give availability, democratize this. And do you feel like that was also just a personality trait or where did that vision for InvestX come from? Yeah, we've been a little bit like that, I think, all my career. And I think there, there's a sense of, you know, that's a, that's a good, that's an interesting piece of insight, the way you've, you've framed that. You know, I, I believe that going back to opportunities in zip codes where we were born in zip codes and people in other parts of the world, like Africa and other parts of Europe and things like that, don't have those same opportunities. And so therefore we have a responsibility. And so there's a bit of a strong sense of kind of justice there. Right. And, and when I started, you know, Stockhouse back in the late 90s, the idea there was to help investors get access to information at the time, because at the time back in the 90s, you may not remember this. And I was a young pup at the time, but the brokers control all the information. And so they would charge three and a half, four percent to trade. The market makers take another eighth or a sixteenth. You know, and so it's very, very expensive to buy shares in IBM at the time or buy shares in Cisco or or Amazon or whichever company you wanted. And then companies like Stockhouse came in and provided the information and the discount brokers like the E-Trades and the Schwabs of the world came in and provided the access. And all of a sudden you had 10 times the participation rate because the, the items that were controlled and were scarce to most people were information and access, right? And so, so the combination of Stockhouse and Yahoo Finance combined with, uh, you know, companies like um, E-Trades and, and Ameritrades of the world, et cetera, you know, really grew that market. And so, so about, you know, about eight or nine years ago, we saw the same thing happening in the private markets where, you know, companies were starting to say private longer. Now, that's a theme that's pr pretty well known today in the private equity space. But I can tell you eight, nine years ago, that was not well known. And so companies were saying private longer when you looked at it. And sometimes you can only see that insight when you're deeply involved in the market, right, where you see it because you're so deeply involved in it. And we were involved in the public equity markets. And so we said, well, geez, there's the same 10 or 12, I call them club institutional investors that were getting access. And why can't more people have access to it? Why do these 10 or 12 institutions, and it was Wellington and Fidelity and TPG and Tiger Global, you know, why do they get access and others don't? And so we said, there's got to be a way for others to be able to provide access. Now, understanding though, that the private markets are very different than the public markets, right? And so now all of, most of the growth companies are in the private market. So if you want growth, you have to be there. But at the same time, you have a lot of different issues that most investors don't understand, like the capital stack and preferred shares and how that affects risk, you know, for example. And so, so what we really thought was best for the industry was that we would help empower sell-side firms and wealth management firms to be able to provide to their clients. So the wealth manager could still help 
you know, their client with making sure there's the right investment that would fit in their portfolio well, so they could get access to this asset class, this growth equity asset class, but also in a way, you know, where they may not have the same understanding of it. You know, because for example, in the private markets, access to information is asymmetrical. It's very, very difficult to get access to. It's not like regulated by the SEC the way it is in the public markets, right? You know, regulation FD fair disclosure doesn't exist. So all these different issues don't exist. And so, so our goal was to really help, you know, firms be able to get access to it um, so they could provide to their clients. Clients could get access to one of the most attractive asset classes that exist, period. You know, be able to have it as a portion of portfolio. And so it wouldn't always be the wealthier getting wealthier. You know, and the SEC's seen this as well, too. The SEC's really mandated the old 60-40 split between bonds, you know, or fixed income and equities, right? That's because they said, if you're not, you know, wealthy, you can't get access to any sophisticated products outside of basically fixed income, you know, and equities. And so returns have been the same for the vast majority of Americans, right? And so, whereas sophisticated people, you know, accredited investors or qualified purchasers, which are investors with more than $5 million, they had access to a broad range of products, right? And so they were able to continue to get more wealthy, you know, wealthier compared to others. And so, so we saw, you know, that this is also fundamentally unfair. The SEC has seen that. And so they've now started to change the rules too, to allow more people to get access to this asset class in addition to, you know, what we're doing. So, which I think is very, very positive for the industry and for investors at, at large. Yeah, because whenever we see a democratization of access to, you know, a large amount of people, there's a massive amount of flow into capital, into those kind of, you know, um, alternative investing. And I know out of all the alternative investing strategies, you know, real estate, natural uh, resources, as well as private equity, private equity almost outpaces all those other investing strategies, uh, almost two to one. It's, it's a really quite remarkable internal rate of return on that. Now, I want to ask you in regards to what do you see? Because we're seeing these private companies staying private longer, which is good. Your company, Jim, with its growth equity marketplace, gives uh, information. You guys do a lot of the due diligence, do a lot of the research on that. Help us understand that Jim platform, uh, GEM platform, for those uh, that, that are listening that need to talk to their money manager, wealth manager, you know, certified financial planner to say, hey, this might be uh, something of, of interest. Like you mentioned, we don't want to just stick with that 60-40 split and we want to maybe stick with a 40-20-20, um, a et cetera. What, what do you see on that? Yeah, so there's really two things that we do. So, so we're institutional asset manager where we manage um, client funds. We distribute it through the wealth management channel, the broker-dealer channel, um, and help clients get access to kind of uh, multi-position funds. So 20 to 25 positions in the fund. We have a five-year fund where we're now raising fund four. Um, and then also single investments where you may have a single company that you're interested in um, that you could invest in almost like a sidecar the way you would think about it in traditional, you know, kind of PE VC terms. And so, and then when we, when you look at that market, you know, we make the decisions, we make these products available, these investments available to customers so they can add to the portfolio. But when you get into the market, what happens, you start to understand some of the real constraints in the industry, right? And one of the constraints in the industry today is that if you want to buy shares in a company, you know, uh, companies are raising capital about every 20 months. So every 20 months, they do a primary capital raise, which means they raise capital so they can take that business, that money in and help grow their business, right? And so, so, and in the in-between times in those 20 months, they call them secondary trades where you might trade with someone else who already is a shareholder. So a shareholder in these companies might be 10 years old, only invest 10 years. So they want to get some form of liquidity and they want to sell it to a new investor who doesn't want to take all that startup risk. The company's now more mature. You know, they want to take the growth from kind of this part of where the business is at before it goes public or has a trade sale down the road. That's the stage that we invest in, which is we don't want to take risk. We're not venture capitalists. You know, we don't want, there's no zeros, you know, knock on wood. You know, but the idea here is there's also no eight or 10 X's, right? Because we're basically buying well-established companies that are typically number one in the world in their space, you know, and what we're trying to do is we try to own those companies for three or four years before they have some kind of liquidity event. Now, when you get into that and you go into wanting to be a primary and a secondary investor the way we are, and we do both, we invest in primaries and secondaries, um, we find that secondaries themselves, it's like a 1980s market. There's no buyers and sellers. You can't find them. There's no price discovery. What do you pay? What does someone who wants to sell their shares get for it? What does the buyer want to buy, buy it for? You know, so there's all these issues. And so, so we built GEM, which is our growth equity marketplace, but really to help us do two things. One is to help institutions to be able to find and match the other side of a trade more efficiently. So if you're Fidelity and you want to sell $30 million, for example, of Kraken, 
you know, and your tiger on the other side and wanted to buy it, we could help to facilitate that and facilitate price discovery, you know, so they'd have an idea of what bids and offers look like so that they could actually have a match and they could do that more efficiently than the way it's done today, which is basically people will get on a telephone phone around and try to find something, right? Which is totally inefficient, doesn't work, you know, and, and what it causes, it causes, you know, prices to be 20% the same week. Someone might buy a share of something for $10 today, might also buy it for $12 tomorrow because they have no idea what the pricing is. And so, so Gem really helps to facilitate, it's institutional only, you know, it helps facilitate block trades. Um, but as an asset manager, what we do is we use that information to help us to be able to understand pricing, right? So if we want to buy uh, a company for $35 a share, for example, and we found, saw that it was trading on Gem at 27, well, we would know that, geez, we should be buying it at $27 because that's where the market is, right? And so it creates a huge competitive advantage for our investment business and that we can understand where pricing is and take advantage of lower pricing in the market because we can see it. Whereas, you know, no asset managers really have that capability. But we have a, you know, a multi, multi, multi-million dollar investment there that Jeffrey's invested and Virtu invested and Canaccord invested in it um, to help to create that. So, so that's what Gem does. It's really institutional block trading helps to facilitate block trades amongst institutions. And then we as an institutional investor use it to understand pricing and also to facilitate when we want to buy secondary. And I want to talk a little bit about your IRR in, in, in some of these kind of, you know, uh, companies, because, you know, I was looking at your guys' website, again, InvestX, and you guys actually have some certain current deal flow, as well as ones that you've exited recently, uh, like Uber, like Lyft, like Palantir. And you guys had some really incredible internal rate of return. I don't know if you can say that right now, but I'd love for you to just share kind of your, your previous history uh, for, for our audience. And so they understand like, oh, this is, you know, again, uh, this vehicle is very, very powerful. Yeah, so you know we, we've had a pretty consistent track record, and it really goes back to our strategy. So I'll explain the strategy, and I can talk about kind of how that's translated into returns. But the strategy basically has been that we want to own companies in the growth phase of their business, right? Not the venture phase. So the venture phase is figuring out how to get customers, supply channels, you know, how to get CAC, you know, what's LTV, you know, like all those things that in terms of building the business, right? And then the growth phase basically is how do we accelerate that business that we understand it deeply who our customer is and, and go get more of them really in effect, right? Not to simplify, but to really go get more of them, use capital, get more of them, not use capital, figure out who they are. And so, so that construct there, we find super attractive because we don't like the risk profile of venture, right? I mean, there's so much money in venture right now. The problem is there's just not enough high quality companies to invest in. And so you see this dilution effect happening where you have to put money into more things, right? Just because you have access to it, right? And so, and what bull markets do is they make a lot of people feel that they're really smart, right? And so there's a lot of first time funds now out as well. Right. And so you got a lot of capital chasing and it makes it makes logical sense. If you think about it, if I'm doing an A round and I want to you know, put it, get 15 million dollars. Well, I can only take three or four investors right for three or four million dollars each because I'm only raising 15 million. But if I'm raising 500 million dollars. Right. There's a lot more access to capital. The company's worth five billion or 10 billion dollars. Right. So there's a way to be an entry point there. That's much more. That's easier. But of course, there's no eight or 10 X's. Right. Because we're not taking that level of risk against it. So. So we've had this sweet spot of really investing in these late stage companies, backing great entrepreneurs and great leadership teams that are building world-class companies and giving them access to more growth capital so they can accelerate their business or helping those issuers to be able to clean up their cap table. And we worked with a number, Palantir being one, for example, where we took, I think, 40 people off the cap table by buying some of the odd lots that they would have where people wanted to sell and they would refer them over to us and then we would be able to have one cap table slot and take a number of people off the cap table because we really love that company. We think they have amazing management. They've done a really amazing job in that business. And so so that's kind of the, the construct of what we do. And so so we basically make these investments where number one is we get access to you know information where we do our own underwriting, figure out what we want to invest in and we invest in you know high growth companies. You know, we look for to own them for three to four years. You know, we look for usually growth rates at 30 to 40%. And then we always look for companies typically at over a billion dollars in valuation, right? So going back to that risk profile. And then the things that we do that are really proprietary is our gem platform gives us access to pricing information that most institutional fund managers don't, don't have and don't understand. And so we have a pricing advantage, which helps us increase returns for clients. We also do what we call odd lots where, you know, if you're Fidelity, you've got so much money, you need to go into a primary and invest $200 million. Well, if we want to invest $25 million in something, we might go out and buy 20 small lots of $800,000 to $2 million or $3 million each, because if you want to sell an odd lot, it's so much work 
to find them, negotiate price, legal contract, due diligence, all those kind of things that they trade at a discount. And so, but then we put all these small odd lots together and we have a big block, right? But you have to have a team to do that. So, so when you think about how to create returns, consistent returns for clients, you have to have some edges in your strategy, right? So ours is pricing through GEM, odd lot strategy, where we do the work, where Fidelity and Tiger and those companies just don't do that kind of work, right? Just takes too much time, right? So, so those are some of the elements of kind of what we do to create returns. And so historically, I think this end of June or the end of September, and of course, you know, past performance isn't indicative of future performance and all the kind of normal safe harbors, but we've been able to generate an 18.5% annualized return net of fees to clients consistently across the board. If you bought it, put a dollar in everything we've done, you know, that would be your track record that we think is pretty outstanding, um, you know, but we have very specific things that we do. We think that help to generate that in a consistent, predictable way. Yeah, and just to reiterate, I think this is what's so interesting about your thesis because there's so, right now in the industry within the last four or five years, we have seen just so much immense amount of capital in the VC. Everything's so sexy. It's the angel investing thing or whatever in the thesis. And what I love about your this this thesis really is these these companies are billion dollar valuation. They've got go to market. They've already got value. I mean, they've already got things rock and rolling. They probably are positive EBITDA depending upon where they're at structurally. But then you're coming in and saying, hey, you know what? I can grab some of the some of the individuals that have been invested for a period of time at the beginning and say, hey, you know what? I can grab and and you know liquidate for you, and you can you know go and do whatever you want to do, and I can take that money for it, and then obviously kind of use it as as an incredible like leveraging on your gem platform growth equity market marketplace where now you're giving access to and democratizing access to these um, RIAs, uh, wealth managers, certified financial planners, and their clients. And again, seeing that. Now, I'm curious, Marcus, because the Jobs Act, as well as the SEC, they have, they're starting to do some really cool stuff here, which is really cool, right? Like you mentioned, they're giving access to these individuals that are accredited investors, or they're readjusting the terminology for accredited investor. How do you think that will affect the future of deploying more capital and giving more access to this kind of alternative investing strategy? Yeah, I think that, that we're seeing a couple of things. So the SEC about a year and a half ago changed the rules. So if you were non-accredited, but you're registered, so let's say you were a financial advisor, but you were not an accredited investor yet, you could get access to this because you're sophisticated enough. And so they're trying to create some sophistication levels. We think that eventually it goes down to a lower income threshold and a lower asset threshold, probably with some caps on it in terms of what you're allowed to invest in terms of dollar amounts, you know, because the SEC, the regulators still want to kind of protect investors you know, on, on a level. Right. And so, um, but the thing that the counterside to that is that if they open up more access capital into this market, they, they, we are recommending and our suggestion and kind of advocation to the regulators is that they take the Swedish approach uh, to the issuers and the information that they have to provide. So in Sweden, for example, when we invest in Spotify, they have an annual disclosure statement that provides some basic financial data and information about their business that they have to do annually. And so that's kind of where we see, you know, what the other side that has to happen too. If you want to, if you want to have more capital go in there, you also have to make sure that certain early VCs who have access to information don't use that as a weapon against others. Right. And so, because if I have information companies poor, performing poorly, and then I just, if I sell my share because I know it and no one else does, then that, that's the other side of it where it can be very negative. Right. And so, so I think that this approach where you know, private companies still private because they don't want to go through all the regulatory burden of disclosure and all those kind of things, but they can have a basic level of disclosure that will help, I think, you know, that make it uh, a little bit more fair. And I think Sweden has got a good model for that. And so, so regulators will make more capital available, which is great, which will lower cost of capital for issuers. Issuers will be able to get more capital more efficiently and effectively. But I think, you know, our advocation is once they pass 500 shareholders on the cap table, then they should have an annual disclosure statement that, again, is brief, but does give some basic level of data for investors so that they're not totally blind. And so let me ask you this, because I want to talk a little bit about your portfolio as well, because, you know, you have such a criteria specific thesis. And if you go on your website, you actually have access to a, quite a few companies. And like I mentioned, I'm just going to share a few here for our audience, for those that are listening. Now, this will probably change depending upon when this comes out, but Instacart, Impossible Foods, 23andMe, Udacity, Hootsuite, Turo. Um, I'm curious, because we're going to see kind of that future of deploying more capital in this, which obviously expedites better IRR because now people have, you know, like you just mentioned, have more access to this capital to be able to, you know, generate better, better returns. Um, 
are, do you think we're going to see these, these kind of unicorns where these companies, do you think we're going to see this pattern consistent in the future? Or do you think we'll start seeing IPOs and SPACs kind of re, reignite to, to um, you know, have an exit? Because I do know the IPO world right now has kind of decreased from what it used to be. You've said that in your other interviews. So I'm just curious with this kind of billion dollar uh, private, private companies, do you think we'll see that trajectory extend consistently now because we're democratizing this opportunity for, again, like we just mentioned, more capital uh, and flooded into the system. Well, I think that you, you have to look at that probably in a short-term basis and a longer-term basis, right? Or let's call it medium-term basis. In the short-term basis right now, there's a re-rating of assets, right? So risk-free, you know, is now at what, you know, 380 basis points or 400 basis points if you're looking at five or 10-year treasuries, right? And so all the other asset classes have basically been re-rated. And so to give you a construct with that, if, if we were buying the private markets at 12 times uh, sales for a SaaS business and now trade eight times sales, right? The private market's going to re-rate if the company has to raise money at that point in time. If the company doesn't have to raise any money, it doesn't really have to re-rate because it can just work its way through it. By working its way through it, meaning if the company's growing at 40% a year, it'll grow into that new rating of eight times, you know, a year and a half to two years from now, right? And so I've called this the lost year and a half, you know, where performance investment returns are going to lose a year and a half within the term cycle of the investment, because it will need that period of time for that company to catch back up to what the new rating is, or, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, price to sales or price to earnings or whatever the, the metric is that you're using, you know, before it recatches up to that, right? So, so it'll lower returns across the board. So if you're looking at 20% uh, annualized returns, you know, you're probably going to lose 20% off of that, Right. So you might be at 16 or 15 percent going forward. Right. If you lost, you know, 12 months, and if you lost 18 months, it might be, you know, 13 or 14 percent. So I think you're going to see that across the board. So when you think about um, public companies and IPOs, though, there's different factors involved there. Right. The, the, the IPO market's closed right now. Right. It's closed. And in the last year, in 2022, private companies were actually more expensive than public companies, which actually logically makes some sense. Right. Because a private investment, you look at it over a longer time period of five years or 10 years. And so you don't have to mark the market it all the time. Right. And so because you're not it's not a investment that you're looking to sell. Right. Whereas the public markets are super efficient. Right. They, they, re, they re-rated and remarked all the investments instantly, almost, you know, theoretically. But uh, but privates did it. And so because privates didn't need to sell. And institutions were now looking at a re-rating in the public markets. They're saying, well, I'm not going to pay more than eight times because the publics are eight and I want a discount if I'm buying private. So I need six, but the, but the privates are sitting at 12. And so there's a frozen market for the last year. It was very, very difficult to find value in the last year. So because of that issue, right? And we saw this a little bit in the M&A market too, where, you know, people that went to sell their businesses in 2021 kind of had an anchored pricing that they saw what valuation was. And all of a sudden, 2022 is like, well, that's half of that now. They're like, well, I'm not going to sell it then, right? Because I've anchored in this valuation at selling it at seven times. Now you're telling me it's five times, right? And so, so those are some of the factors that really kind of froze the market. And so we saw across the board, equity capital markets at most of the firms, the sell side firms, the revenues are down 70, 80, 90%, right? Because of the fact that it was just a frozen market. Where we're seeing that change is eventually, you know, to free that up, you have to have, you know, buyers either come up in price in the private markets or sellers come down in price. Well, you can probably guess which one's going to happen first, right? Sellers are going to capitulate, right? Because sellers will need a form of liquidity. And we're seeing that with the layoffs. Like we saw some spreads in the private markets and shares and companies where when the layoffs came in, all of a sudden employees now had 90 days to exercise their ESOPs, their RSUs. And so they would now sell because they need to hit a bid, any bid. And so this is the one factor why I'd say, like when we look at our fund four, for example, that we think this can be an incredible vintage, right? Is because of the fact that we, we did this in COVID as well. In COVID time, we said, let's just put in low bids on some high quality names. Someone's going to need liquidity. They're going to hit our bid and we're going to take advantage of it, right? And take advantage of them needing liquidity. And so we're starting to see that a little bit where we saw stocks that were trading at $35, you know, bids were 20. No one would be anywhere close. And all of a sudden the employees got laid off and the employees started hit 20 and a reset valuation for others, right? And so you now start to see a little bit of liquidity there, not $20, you know, which is a significant discount. The last price raised was 45, you know, is trading second at 35, now it's trading at 20. So these windows, though, of opportunities don't happen for very long because eventually what happens is institutional money comes in and starts to clean it up because they go, that's too low, right? Like we, we would have been having to pay 28 or 29, but it was 35, but now it's 20. So now, so it moves it back up. And so, so these are pockets where you come out of these frozen markets and in certain names, 
we're working to take advantage of those. And we think they'll be high performers in terms of our funds, but also high performing investments in general. So those are some of the elements that kind of are, are sitting there. Reality is, is that, you know, at some point, you know, down the road, we need to have an IPO market that's open again. So that's how we get liquidity, right? Because we own companies until we have the liquidity event, right? So, so at some point down the road, but I don't see that happening this year in 2023. You know, if, if it does, it'll probably be the last quarter. Um, but we are starting to see some high quality uh, names being talked about, you know, um, and so we'll see what happens, right? And so, and it could be Instacart, obviously the top of the list for doing an IPO this year. Uh, they had filed confidentially last year. You know, Starlink could could come out of, uh, you know, SpaceX this year. So there's a whole bunch of really, you know, really interesting names that could IPO this year, but I think it's going to be much, very, very selective. Only the highest quality company is going to come to market right now until, you know, we get inflation back. And inflation, you know, uh, should be lower by the summer, significantly lower. It's already showing that it's going to be much lower by the summer. So you're seeing these trends, which is very interesting. I appreciate kind of going micro and macro on that, where you're 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 seeing these trends where you were able to bid way below market price normally at a, in a private world. And the reason why is because you saw the trend of, hey, you know, what? a lot of people are going to look for liquidity right now. A lot of employees, et cetera, going to take, like you mentioned, just kind of optimize those ESOPs and so forth. And so that's one of the reasons why you went ahead and, you know, added value and said, you know what, let's take take ownership of that because then obviously naturally you can you know lock in a position at a very very low price your irr when you decide to exit or whenever that looks like when they exit two to three years you're, it's going to be obviously much better and much much more increased so i appreciate you kind of giving us that synopsis i want to ask a little bit in regards to you know we're seeing you know and i think i i've read something where it was like 18 trillion dollars and it's going to grow this market going to grow to like 26 trillion or 27 trillion by like 2030 or something like that i something something insane i was just like wow this is unbelievable um and i, I don't know if i got the numbers correct I, I may have to you know put an article down there to to reiterate that but i do know it's trillions of dollars and we're seeing massive massive movement in this and like you mentioned it's just institutional um another question you know so my question is this is like do you feel like the their RIAs as wealth wealth managers they're so more familiar with you know stocks and bonds 60 40 are they familiar with this asset class where they're deploying you know capital I know institutionals are but I'm curious do you see what what, what is it that's that's causing this um you know we're seeing that trajectory but what do you think is is um are they are they educated to know hey this is an asset class that these you know individuals want to deploy capital with what what does that process look like yeah, I think that the, you know, the registered investment advisor and those firms, um, you know, have an understanding of the asset class. One of the challenges that they've had and, and the sell side firms have had really before Investex is being able to get them to get access to it in a compliant way, right? With the level of due diligence and the underwriting that we do and, and when we, you know, make an investment um, and have that work from a compliance perspective internally at those firms. And so, um, you know, when you think about private equity, though, it's obviously really, really large, but the vast majority of that is leveraged buyouts, right, where you're buying control positions in companies, you're using leverage to basically get returns, much like you use a mortgage on a house, right? And so that's really the vast majority of it. You know, if you look at the growth equity space where we are, it's about a three or four trillion dollar asset class. I mean, still massive, right? But it's about a three or four trillion dollar asset class, whereas obviously, you know, private equity, you know, real estate, you know, private credit, you know, a lot of those other infrastructure, those are all kind of part typically of these alts, you know, kind of forms as well. So, but, um, you know, the real the main issue is, you know, for registered investment advisors and wealth management firms is, you know, how do we get access to product set that works from a compliance perspective for us, right? And so, and that's what we do, right? So we work with them to help them get access to this asset class from a compliant perspective. Yeah, because the reason why I asked that is I was literally talking to a family office and they managed about a billion and a half dollars. And what was interesting is that they don't really allocate too much toward an alternate, alternate investing, maybe like, you know, real estate, you know, those typical stuff that, you know, gets more incentivized for tax, you know, reduction. But what I found interesting is they didn't put any toward private you know, equity. And so I'm thinking, well, look at the stats on this, look at the trajectory, like you mentioned, and I've, I listened to a lot of your interviews. So that's why I was confused. So that, that's, the re that's the reason why they really were you know, migrating toward that is the challenge was they didn't have the, the information and the compliance to be able to you know, 
overcome that hurdle. Now they do and invest X. That's the whole goal of, you know, you guys are the bridge behind that and say, hey, this is what we, we've got all the due diligence. We got access to it. You don't have to do all that hard, you know, heavy lifting. We come in, we got everything all on the gym platform as well as BD like side, side of things. And then you collaborate with them and then seeing that, that, that massive trajectory. Where is, I know Invest X, you guys are really hitting some massive, massive trajectory. Where are you guys' goals? What, what does that look like? And, and just kidding, because I, I think you guys are hitting mass scale right now. You guys are very well known. You've been featured a lot of different places. Help me understand where Invest X, you know, goal and dreams and, and, and kind of vision of this. Yeah, I mean, we really want to help, um, you know, sell side firms get access to be able to invest and trade in the security in this asset class, right? And we think that, you know, the market today is very, very inefficient. You know, it's inefficient for capital formation, you know, for issuers raising capital, it's inefficient for them helping their early investors to be able to get access to liquidity and putting high quality institutions on their cap table for the next phase of their business. If it's to go public, for example, that market's very, very inefficient. And so we think that there's opportunities to be able to help that market be able to, you know, not only get access to pro to products to help their investors get the returns as a part of how they structure the portfolio overall, right? But also for institutions to be able to actually, um, you know, invest and trade in this asset class in a much more efficient way too, especially in terms of block trades. When you think about $50 million, $100 million, $200 million trades, they're very, very inefficient, right? And issuers typically don't want to spend time with this. Like they want to concentrate on their business, right? They want to get clean access to capital so that it's good for them to build their business, but they don't want to be worried about whether that my early shareholder from 10 years ago, he needs to sell, you know, and how do I have, do I have to be involved with that and, and spend time in legal and other parts of the organization to do that? What they want to do is they want to have efficient ways that that can be taken care of, right? So they can build their business, right? And so, so we think, you know, our goal really is to be, you know, the, the catalyst for that is to be that efficient frontier for capital formation for issuers, for liquidity, for early or shareholders and institutions, you know, but broadly to really, you know, on our theme that we started with, you know, when we're back in Stockhouse, we talked about being on the street, which is, you know, how do more people get access to putting this amazing asset class in their portfolio, right? It should not be that just the super ultra wealthy or, the, or a small group of institutional funds can get access to it. I mean, it must be broader. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, grandma should own it or anything like that. 100% not, right? But it should be that, you know, as people are building wealth, they have the ability to actually put in some other alternative asset classes into the portfolio outside of just real estate, right? And so, and REITs, right? And the problem, of course, with real estate and REITs, they're so efficient, right? You know, it's hard to make returns there. There's just super efficient, right? There's very few, you know, factors that are unknown there. So, so we're really excited for helping others to be able to get access to it and building an amazing business as a result of it. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we generate carry, so we benefit when our clients benefit, and so we're always aligned. Yeah, I think it's so interesting in regards to the private equity, because, I mean, everybody talks about real estate, and I understand definitely in the high net worth, ultra high net worth, or a credit investor, you know, it's, it's good strategy for, you know, decreasing that tax uh, tax side of things, and definitely in the U.S., but, uh, you know, private equity, it's really, you know, that preservation versus growth mindset, it, you know, private equity really gives you in a different vehicle to be able to grow that and be able to, you know, outpace um, the market, but also outpace everything else. Because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Marcus, I, I think I listened to one of your content as well as some other stuff where the private equity world has outpaced the, the public markets by, uh, by quite a bit. Is that correct from what I remember? Yeah. And it, well, it's outpaced most asset classes, but, but again, part of it is because it's, it's, um, inefficient, right? And so in inefficiencies, you can find ways to make returns, right? I always joke, you can't be the Goldman Sachs computers in the public markets, right? You know, they analyze conference call data, you know, to see whether the CEO or CFO are hesitant to see whether they're not confident in statements. I mean, they're just the level of sophistication in the public markets where information's equal, right? Is can't, you can't be the computers. Whereas you go into markets like the private markets, it's the exact opposite. It's like 1980, right? Like, you know, there's getting access to information is difficult. Understanding price discovery is difficult. You know, understanding the capital stack and the risk related are difficult. All these issues are difficult. And when you've got a lot of difficult issues, if you can become very, very skilled and experts and use technology, you know, you can actually work out returns in a much more predictable way, right? And so, so I think it's amazing. Private equity though, is done well because it uses leverage, right? So it uses debt all the time, right? So the debt piece, you're paying debt at 200 basis points, you know, and you're growing at 800 basis points, you're getting a spread. And so it compounds against the invested capital. So that's a bit of a financial engineered, 
model for returns, which is why it's also outperformed, you know, quite dramatically as well, right? So, but REITs and real estate's got to have challenges now, right? Because if risk-free now is running at 380 basis points or 360 or 400 basis points or 4%, you know, cap rates are in trouble, right? You know, so because you've got to re-rate now in terms of making returns, you got to pay more interest now, which means prices have to come down, right? So real estate equity value has got to come down. And a lot of people made money in real estate over the last six years when we were talking about 150 you know, basis points or one and a half, two percent, three percent mortgages, two and a half percent long-term mortgages, because they kept basically refinancing, taking the equity out, right? Because those low rates, equity values continue to rise, right? And so they would refinance, take equity out, return capital faster, right? So that's going to be dead for a while, right? So that's going to be dead for a while. So, you know, and, and equity prices are coming down now, which is also going to create some potential covenant issues now you know, on ones that got really highly leveraged because of that. So, but anyways, but all asset class go through that. The growth equity asset class going through it, we're rating as well, right? We were at 12 times, you know, price of sales and SaaS businesses, and now it's eight times, right? And so there's a re-rating there. And to me, there's that lost 18 months or 24 months or 12 months, depending on the growth rate of the company. But we're going to expect that across all the asset classes. Now, Marcus, you, you mentioned, and I really appreciate you explaining that a little bit. It is interesting. We could talk about real estate quite a bit here because that's, that's an interesting topic right now at in in a macro level. But I want to ask you in regards to, you mentioned something which is very important for a lot of our audience to understand. You know, private markets, you uh, private you know companies, you don't have access to a lot of the due diligence, the financials, all that stuff, right? The trajectories and wh where it's, you know, at. And there have to be like people like yourself that have access to it. But in the, you know, when you're an IPO public, there are a lot of guidelines, SEC and all that stuff, right? That be able to make sure, hey, these people are, there's a lot of paperwork. And so now we have access to it, which like you mentioned, there's, there's you know, uh, available for myself, available for anybody out there that wants to get access to it. I want to ask InvestX, what is your guys' due diligence process? How does that work? I know you guys obviously have a designated team to be able to do that, but like, let me un, you know understand what all you gather and what all you get and how you're able to do that. I'm not sure exactly how far you can get into detail with that, but I'd love to just explain the, the importance of, hey, you guys do a lot of due diligence and emphasizing that aspect before you guys you know carry on that conversation, taking a position. But if you could just share with us your, your guys' thesis behind that. Yeah, so we have a dedicated, you know, uh, team that does that work, right? And so now that information, when we're uh, acting as our investment asset manager, that information is not available to limited partners, not available to others, right? So that's information that we use to understand a business. We create a thesis around the business. We typically are looking for three times cash on cash return, you know, base case, two times cash on cash return. That helps us to generate the 20% return that we're looking for over the course of that investment, which is three to five years typically, right? So... So a team goes through all that information. You know, we provide different values to the issuer. Like from an issuer's perspective, for example, as I mentioned with Palantir, you know, we were a go-to group that they would phone us up and say, hey, look, we've got some shares. Do you want to buy, buy them? Because they wanted to have one person on the cap table that would be constant buyer taking off all those small family offices, those smaller early stage investors, right? Take them off and put on a new institutional investor that would take it and support it to when through the, their public process, right? And, and now potentially even beyond, you know, in terms of our new fund, we have some ability to do that as well. So so they need a partner that can help them with some of that liquidity. And so, but everything we do from an information perspective is 100% confidential. It's not available to others. In the block trading side, if you're Fidelity or you're Tiger, you have the information already. What you need there in our venue at Jam is the ability to find the other side of a trade in a more efficient, effective way, right? And understand pricing. That's what you need there, right? You don't need to, us to give you information. We wouldn't give it to them anyways, but, you know, but what they need is basically the ability to actually do price discovery and trade transactions and find buyers and sellers for it in a much more effective way. And so, and again, it all comes together because we use Jam to provide competitive advantage for us when we're purchasers, investors in, in our companies that we invest in. Again, we, we love these companies, the world-class companies that are doing amazing things with the best leadership teams in the world, you know, and so, and that ultimately goal though, is to provide returns for clients, right? That's the ultimate, ultimate objective. So let me ask you this, because I'm, I, I just got off a, a meeting last week with Sachin Kajaria, which he was a managing partner at Apollo. And it was interesting because we were talking a little bit about tokenization and blockchain and how that can and cannot impact. We're seeing that kind of impact the real estate. We're seeing that impact kind of small, small cap companies. I'd like to ask you, do you see it playing a role in this growth equity side of things in the private equity world? What is your opinion on that, Marcus? You know, we've done a lot of thinking around that issue, right? And is there a real practical use case for it today, 
right? In, in, in our space. I mean, there's obviously lots of practical use cases in lots of other areas, right? And there's lots of investment happening, like Swift, for example, you know, payments is a really perfect example of how the blockchain can really help that, you know, audits in financial statements, you know, inventory, lots of different things like that, that are actually, uh, you know, the blockchain is perfectly suited for, and will be, a, I think, a pretty significant part of the compliance regulatory structures of things going forward, as it already is starting to, you know, penetrate today, right? It'll drive more confidence and it'll reduce costs, right? The amount of money spent today on, on audits and things like that is massive, right? And so, so I think all of those things are are really high, good first use cases that will actually create real significant business productivity and real significant cost savings in their typical use cases. When it comes to growth equity asset class space, um, I don't know if it's so required, right? Like there's not a big issue of fraud, share fraud, right? Because, you know, ultimately the cap tables are controlled by the issuer, right? And so if you're making a trade, if you're Fidel and you're selling to Tiger, you know, that trade's going to happen there, you know, can it be more efficient? hundred percent, right? And there's solutions there, you know, Morgan Stanley with their ShareWorks is a solution that working on making it more efficient. And there's others as well. Um, so that will make that more electronic. But at the end of the day, fraud's not a really a big issue there today, right? Where you need to have a immutable, you know, kind of blockchain there so that people know for sure that, hey, that that is actually for sure shares, you know, it's indisputable, you know. So, so and and there's a there's a friction to putting it into that form. Right, there's a friction of putting it in the form and a friction of taking it out of that form. So, so I just don't think, and it's not a thing that has high processing transactions like that cap table. You know, it's going back to Kraken. You know, isn't changing every minute of the day or anything like that. Right, it might change every week only. Right, and so do you really want to put that in place and go through all the use cases and all the you know kind of the user experiences that you know require a learning curve and all those kind of things. So, so I don't see it to be that practical. I do think though over time. It makes a hundred percent sense that if you if you believe that there will be uh, electronic currency and stable coins, you know whether you believe on cryptocurrencies or not, but just using a stable coin, for example, electronic transfer um, in terms of U.S. dollar, um, you know that would make more sense then because you can you know more easily be able to authenticate and trade those securities, you know. But but I see it as the next phase, right? The first phase is you need more information. The regulatory bodies need to provide some basic access to information, right? Because if more people can get access to it without having information, it's going to be more, it, you know, there's a lot of risk there for investors, right? So, but ultimately, so it's a bit, bit of a long-winded answer. Ultimately, theoretically, it should go there, right? Where there's a common set, um, all cap tables are like that. You know that we could we could trade it very easily. We could T zero settle it instantly because of the fact that we know that's there. There's smart contracts that sit around it that establish whether you could buy it or sell it. You know what the terms are. I mean, it's in the perfect situation for that. But the practicality of it today is that it's such low usage today at every different different issuer that there's probably not a big catalyst for it to to move quickly. But that could change. No, that makes sense. That makes sense in regards to like, obviously the first, you know, applicable user side of things. And then obviously the second side of things, because I was looking at, you know, there's a lot of platforms where they have that, you know, be able to raise capital for a lot of startups and VCs and, and, and stuff like that. And where, you know, everyday Joe can go in there, deploy, you know, 2000, $3,000 worth of whatever. And then you get the percentage equity of that. And that's one of the reasons why I looked at this as well, instead of, you know, these, these startups with, you know, the risk is, is just unbelievable. Uh, you know, you and I understand kind of the risk tolerance risk in, in that situation but in these private equity billion dollar valuation a lot of you know individuals below accredited investor do not have access to it and that's why i was wondering if they would be able to deploy this tokenization or blockchain where you can now own you know uh, one token equals fifty dollars a hundred dollars or three hundred dollars or whatever and that equates to hey you know i own you know 50 tokens which owns a portion of this larger company and as it scales uh to, again democratize it but like you mentioned it's it's really dependent upon you have to have some sec or guidelines to be able to have this data uh these private companies to be able to um you know, give to to these individuals that are looking to invest it. So I appreciate just kind of your your synopsis about you know tokenization and crypto and blockchain a little bit. It's a very interesting conversation, uh, Marcus. For those that uh, want to get access and understand a little bit more about InvestX, you guys have tons of resources. But also for those that want to say, hey, you know what? I need to talk to my wealth manager, certified financial planner. I need to talk to my you know RIA right and have that 
conversation and dialogue, how do they reach out to you? How do they be part of that conversation? How do they maybe make the connection between you and, and that RIA that they're, that they're working with to be able to say, hey, you know what, we want to look at the, the gym platform or you know, the, the other access points that they have? How do they do that, Marcus? Yeah, so we have a website, investexcapital.com, that you know that has our portfolio and, and has our strategy, and, and you know, and, and people certainly can contact us through that way. Uh, institutionally, our trading platform is at investex.com. Um, you know, so but yeah, we'd love to talk to you know sell side firms or IRAs or you know individuals that are interested in the space. You know, we're always we're always happy to talk and and uh, you know help them get access to it. And you know, that's been our, really kind of our mission from the beginning was you know, to help a broader group of people get access to this amazing asset class, you know, in a really productive way and have, have be able to benefit from having a portion of their portfolio in it. So we'd love to be able to help them out. Awesome. Guys, those links will be in the description. And I just want to let, again, my audience know that InvestX has tons of resources where if you don't understand a little bit about this thesis or private equity world, alternative investing, and you need a little bit more education, Marcus has got a lot of content on his website where he's been featured, not only on this conversation that we've had, but also others. So you can get a little context in regards to obviously the internal rate of return. And if you guys aren't allocating some of your wealth or some of your you know wealth management side of things and diversifying into this kind of strategy, then that is something that you need to have a conversation with your wealth manager and certified financial planner and have that conversation and see this could be part of your thesis. Uh, Marcus, I really appreciate you unpacking. I appreciate you being on the forefront, democratizing this, being able to get access to a lot of these individuals. And really, just like you mentioned, seeing the opportunity, finding that this is a complicated thing and being able to really kind of bridge that gap for RIAs, but also those accredited investors, high net worth and ultra high net worth and, and a lot of my audience. So I really appreciate that. I always have to ask my guests before I let you go, is there any last words of wisdom they'd like to share with our audience? <laughs> you know, I think that, uh, you know, not, not to be so contrite, um, you know, but I'll, I'll summarize in this way. When things look really negative, you know, we like to kind of step into things. And so when COVID happened in March 2020, you know, the world was falling apart. We said, you know, from our experience, right, from our experience in, you know, 2008 and nine, from our experience 2001 and 2002, you know, from our experiences in the 90s was we have, there will be some incredible quality names that there needs to be a bid for that someone is going to hit the bid and it's going to be super successful for us. And so when the whole world was saying, no way. Now, at the time, there was very few people had courage to invest in that fund with us, to be honest. Very few people are like, there's no way. This whole COVID thing, we're locked down. We're getting our, our payments. Um, but that fund returned 3.2x in three years, you know, which is you know, outstanding considering the kind of billion-dollar companies that we're buying um, you know, because we had, they had courage. And so you know, we think uh, right now this would be a really great vintage as well for our new fund four and uh, taking examples of that same kind of strategy we did in COVID time. We're again putting some low price bids in on super high quality names that will benefit you know two three years from now. So, so something to think about as you think about also other ask classes that you're in. You know, are there some ways to step into things without having to pick bottoms, but step into things now that some things have really overreacted. I love it, man. I love it. When there's blood in the streets, you know, go for it and optimize it. And you've seen that numerous times and you're taking action. That's one of the reasons why Investex has such massive up to the right trajectory. Marcus, I appreciate you being on here big time. Guys, that is the CEO and founder of Investex, my friend, Marcus New. Guys, that is Journey with Christian David's podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans, Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. We thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode. If you feel and you know that this was valuable to you, please show some love to our amazing guest by liking this, by commenting on this, by making sure that you do a nice five-star review and just show some love to our guest. That'd be really awesome. Also, make sure you share this with a friend, a family, a colleague, someone that you believe would bring value to their life right now. Uh, and guys, we just want to say thank you again for just being part of our community. If you want to have more resources, don't be afraid. Go to christiandevans.com. You can actually schedule a phone call with me or you can send me an email at christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. That's christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. Always love to hear some feedback and let me know what is the number one or two things that you are struggling in your business and your life and we'll make sure we have those conversations. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. And until next time, remember, be uncommon if you can. Cheers.